Amen. Uh, you may be seated as you find your Bibles. Uh, in a moment, you'll see uh, why we're taking on a, a bigger chunk of text this morning. And so we'll be seated as we read God's Word and take it in. And we've come to a large section in Luke where Jesus deals with uh, many things, the destruction of Jerusalem and indeed the end of all things. And so we're going to spend two weeks on this passage, and uh, we'll be looking at the first 24 verses this morning. There is an outline for you, uh, if that's helpful for you, in the bulletin. Um, uh, This week, believe it or not, we'll just be looking at point number one, and uh, probably won't get any further than that. And then, Lord willing, we'll finish next week. And so feel free to cross things off and make whatever room you need on your outline. So we'll look at Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5 this morning. Would you hear then the word of the Lord? And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you, and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate before then, beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put even to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the countryside of the city depart and let those who are outside the city not enter into it. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, For those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is God's word for us this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we desire today to behold wondrous things out of your law. Would you grant us the wisdom of your spirit so that we can apply these things rightly and order our lives around the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, imagine if you will, um, maybe you don't have to imagine, but think back or imagine uh, a time when your parents uh, were leaving on a trip. 
and you were old enough uh, to be okay on your own in the house, but uh, they left you a list of things to do, you know, tasks, chores, uh, but also fun things. You know, they, they left you, um, uh, you know, maybe at the time it was, you know, $2 for pizza, much more now. Uh, they, they leave you money for pizza. They say you could go to a movie, you know, here's some ideas, make sure you do this, and they leave. And the nature of this trip is that you don't know exactly when they're coming back. They, the earliest they could come back is Sunday evening, of that week, but it could be as long as Wednesday of that week. Uh, you don't know. And so they leave. If you're like me, you do most of the to-do things starting Sunday afternoon because you know, you do the math and say, well, bare minimum, <laughs> they might come back tonight, so I, I, I better be ready for that. Uh, but as Christians, we, we live between the times in a much bigger way. Uh, not just our parent leaving and coming back. We live between the times, between the time when Jesus came definitively, came uh, as a human being, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death as the perfect sacrifice, was raised again in power, seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, where he reigns now over his people and over the world. Uh, Now we're in this in-between space, and at some point he's coming back. Uh, He's coming back to gather his people to himself, to defeat his enemies once for all, uh, to throw Satan and his angels into the lake of fire. We live in between the times, in between these two comings of Jesus Christ. And as you might know, Christians disagree about some things. They they disagree about uh, the timeline of what's going to happen in between the first and second coming. Uh, You go to some churches, and if we were preaching a sermon on the end times, there would be a chart that would go from this end of the wall to the other end of the wall to make space, right? Um, So that's, you know, some approach it that way. Some probably more like myself and and our elders, the timeline would be much simpler. And yet even with these legitimate disagreements, which are important to dig into, uh, Christians, historic Christians have agreed. Christ came, Christ is coming back, and we are to stay awake, to stay alert, Uh, He's coming back at a day and an hour we don't know, and so we need to live in light of his coming, in light of the fact that he is king and that he is coming to reign fully one day. Even as we dig into then some of the weeds here in this passage, you might have noticed maybe some questions pinged in your mind, or maybe you already have some notes in your Bible with big question marks. Even as we do that, let's not lose the forest for the trees. At the end of the day, this message today and the message next week, Lord willing, The main point is to stay awake, to live in light of his coming, regardless of what our views are of that middle space that we occupy. And so let's dive in then. Uh, These sermons might feel a bit more like teaching. Uh, It would certainly be preaching still, but we're going to be digging in a bit. For some of you, that that means there's much rejoicing. (laughs) You say, man, I wish it was like this every week. Uh, For some of you, you might say, I have 10,000 children on my lap. How am I going to dig into this passage? (laughs) Um, We do record these, so that is helpful, uh, but also bear with me. Uh, Some passages of Scripture are are like a a ripe fruit that, I mean, you just barely touch it and they just come off the vine. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? And some passages of Scripture are like rocks that we need to mine. We need to uh, pull out our mining tools, do some work, but the payoff is wonderful as the Spirit reveals to us wonderful gems from his word. That's the kind of work I hope to do this week and next. And so let's uh, look then at point number one in your outline, where we'll spend our time this morning. 
Uh, again, the main point uh, is to stay awake, to stay alert. But we're going to look first at, uh, within that. When Jesus tells his disciples to stay awake, first they need to understand the last days. They need to understand. Uh, they need to come to a knowledge of what was about to happen to them in their life, what was going to happen at the end of time. And so Jesus wants you as well. In the parallel passage in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus says, See, I have told you beforehand. Uh, Jesus is preparing them, preparing his disciples, preparing you, uh, even for the last days. Now, before we go any further, we need to say that the last days, uh, that might make you think, if we're looking at our timeline, that might make you think of literally those couple years before the end, and in some ways it could be applied to that. But the Bible uses the term last days to speak of that whole period between his first and second coming. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, or 1 Peter 1, 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, for the sake of you, the, the writers of the New Testament speak to their people as if they are in the last days, awaiting the next great event, which is Christ coming back. And so uh, let's dive in then. Uh, if you look at your text in verse uh, 5, uh, it sets the context uh, for us. This has been called uh, the Olivet Discourse, uh, because in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 24, Jesus gives this teaching on the Mount of Olives. Even here in Luke, uh, although he's, the, the setting here is more around the temple, he uh, lodges in the Mount of Olives in the evening of Holy Week. And so we have Luke 21, Matthew 24, Mark 13 all record the same teaching of Jesus about the last days. Let's look again at this opening section to set the scene. It says, While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings... He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when, you will, when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that, the, that these things are about to take place? Now, remember the context here. Jesus has been in the temple He's been refuting his opponents who have tried to trap him in his words, and he has thwarted them at every turn. He turned it on them and, and gave teachings against their practice, against their doctrine. They were not recognizing the Messiah. And so as people are walking out of the temple, they're just noticing, wow, this temple is amazing. Uh, the offerings that go into it, they, it it's adorned, it's incredible. And remember that this temple was what we call the second temple. Uh, Solomon uh, built his temple uh, in, the Old, in the Old Testament, but that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. Uh, you might remember in the book of Haggai and, and Zechariah, we hear about the second temple being built, the exiles that had come back to the land. Uh, they built a much smaller temple. If you remember at its uh, sort of founding, there was the cries of joy and weeping were just mixed together, those who remembered what the temple was and those who didn't have any concept of that. But this was the temple that stood until the days of, of Herod uh, the Great and, and his sons who uh, reigned in a very small way over Jerusalem under Roman rule. Herod the Great uh, adorned the temple. There was a massive reconstruction project from 20 B.C. all the way up to 63 A.D. 
And it, it was incredible. The, the temple would have been a contender for one of the wonders of the ancient world. And that's the temple that the disciples are looking at and saying, Jesus, look at this temple. It's amazing. And so imagine how they heard Jesus' words. As for these things that you see, the days will come when they will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. How would the disciples have taken that? <laughs> they just left the temple. They see it, and he's saying, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be gone. And not just the incredibleness of the temple itself, but think of this, the central place that the temple played in the life of the Jews. This is where they came to worship, rightly, before Christ came and ended the sacrifices. This is where they came to sacrifice. This is where they came, like this week, for Passover. This was the center of life for the Jewish people. The temple was where God was in a very real way. And so Jesus saying, this temple will be destroyed, would have shocked the disciples, and it leads to their question, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take a place? Again, the disciples are shocked. They, in their minds, they're saying, wait a minute. No, 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 the temple's supposed to remain until the Messiah comes and drives out the Romans and, and sets up rule. But okay, if you're saying it's destroyed, when's this going to happen? And in Matthew, they say, when will be the end of the age? For them, it's all one question. They're saying, we, the Messiah and the temple, they're tied together. If, if, the, if the temple's going to be destroyed, that's like the end of the world for us. We can't imagine anything worse than that. And so Jesus answered then to their question, which is really the rest of the passage this week and next week. Um, we have to ponder a few things. Because some of what he says sounds like just literally the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Some of the language sounds more like over here on the timeline, at the end of the age, when Christ will come back once and for all. A legitimate Christians who love their Bibles, even Reformed Christians, disagree on this passage, which parts relate to which. Uh, and so we'll have a judgment of charity. We'll approach this with uh, humility. Most commentators think that it's a, it's a bit of both, that he's speaking of 70 AD, he's speaking of the end, and uh, it's our work to sort that out humbly with open hands and always landing again on the main point that we are to stay awake. If that intimidates you that some scripture is not as clear as others, one of my favorite scriptures is 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter, an apostle writing scripture, speaks of Paul and his writings, even the scriptures, and says some of it's hard to understand. Uh, so you're in good company if some of God's word is hard to understand. His word is clear. He teaches us what we need to know, but that doesn't mean that some scriptures aren't like minds that we need to dig out. And so let's dig in. So Jesus begins to answer their uh, question. Uh, let's look at verse uh, 8. He said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, uh, but this is not the end, or the end will not be at once. Here we get the first of many imperatives, commands. Jesus says, see that you are not led astray. Again, he's preparing the disciples. I think we're in a section here where he's initially talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what they've asked about. That's what he's answering about. And he warns them that there will be false prophets, even false messiahs who will come during this time. It's interesting, Josephus, a Jewish historian, who was an eyewitness of 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem, 
It's interesting, he, he, we see Jesus' words play out. He talks about an incident where uh, there was a false prophet telling the people, don't leave the city, go to the temple, <laughs> gather around the temple, and, and those people were destroyed by the Romans. Uh, and he seems to indicate, Josephus, that the Romans were even stirring up some of these false prophets to say, no, 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 stay in Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem. So indeed, there were false prophets at the time. Uh, Jesus warns them here and now that this will happen. He says, don't believe them. Uh, he warns them of the impending revolts and the Roman responses, which we'll see in a minute. But he says, do not be terrified. These things must first take place. See, I've told you beforehand. And yet he says, the end will not be at once. Uh, many believe we begin to see a distinction between what's about to happen and what will happen at the end of the age. Uh, do not be alarmed, this must happen. Uh, but it's also not the end. If you look at, glance at verses 10 through 19, We'll turn back to this section next week. Uh, here, uh, we'll see next week that Jesus starts to give them imperatives. What does life look like for the apostles and then therefore for us? It looks like endurance even to the point of death. But then we come to verse 20 and really the fall of Jerusalem itself. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. What follows is a, a dramatic description of what was going to take place within their lifetime. Uh, so much so that, of course, you know, critical scholars who don't believe that this is God's word say that, oh yeah, the church, they just added these words later. There's no way that Jesus could have known what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Uh, but of course, we have a different view of Jesus as fully God and fully man. And so Jesus predicts, prophesies what is about to happen. When you see Jerusalem surrounded uh, Jesus has spoken of this already in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 13, he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He weeps over the city in Luke 19. Uh, he says um, in Luke 19, your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus has been predicting this, even as he interacts with the Jewish leaders who are rejecting him and rejecting him. He's warning them and warning them, warning the people of what is coming. And so let's look very briefly at the history of what did happen. Uh, there were earlier revolts by Jews. Uh, we call them zealots. Uh, they would have been on a spectrum, some of them willing to die and, and stir up, others just resistant to Roman rule, but those uh, most uh, zealous, as it were, uh, there were many uh, uh, who stirred up and, and, and were trying to push Rome out. But in 66 AD, uh, we have what's called the first Jewish revolt against Rome. Uh, they took a Roman garrison and were actually holding Jerusalem for a brief time. Emperor Nero, who you might be familiar with, is infamous for his persecutions. Uh, he appoints a man named Vespasian to put down the revolt. By AD 68, uh, this uh, Vespasian and his 60,000 troops crush rebellion in Galilee along the Mediterranean. They're heading toward Jerusalem. By 69 AD, uh, Vespasian returns to Rome as emperor. He sends his son Titus to finish uh, the deed. And in 70 AD, Titus besieges Jerusalem in spring. And by the end of summer, the city had fallen and the temple was destroyed and a monument to Titus was erected, which is still there to this day. 
with this historical background, would you hear Jesus' words in, 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 in perhaps more tangible and vivid way? Starting in verse 21, Jesus says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the, in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Siege warfare was horrific in the ancient world. The idea was to block off a city from supplies, from food, from water, uh, so that it was just sort of a time game. Eventually, the city would break. Uh, it's interesting what Jesus says. It, it, you know, we often say, you know, how does the scripture apply? Well, for, for the, those hearing Jesus' words, it applied very tangibly. When you see Jerusalem surrounded, depart, flee, get out. Don't believe those who are saying that there's no danger. Don't believe the false messiahs. Get out of Jerusalem. And indeed, Christians did at the time, and, and some Jews as well. Uh, but these Jewish Christians, heeding Jesus' words, even before 70 AD, but uh, began to flee from Jerusalem. And this was part of the gospel going to the nations. Jesus makes this tangible reference to saying, alas for pregnant women and those who are nursing in these days. Do you remember the Almeida fires a couple years ago? Uh, as elders, we, you know, we had a spreadsheet. We were trying to call people and just get a sense of who was fleeing, who was staying, who was safe, who was in the evacuation zone. And uh, we especially felt for, we, like now, there was a similar prayer list of, of women who were pregnant uh, by God's grace. And, and, and some of them did. They had to flee. Some of them were trying to leave Central Point and couldn't get out. Uh, it's difficult for anybody, but picturing you know, being pregnant, some of them very pregnant, or nursing, or even just young children, having to uh, wake them up in the middle of the night, having to sleep somewhere else. Uh, it's just a small taste of the distress that was felt by those in Jerusalem when Jesus' words came to pass. He speaks of those falling by the edge of the sword, being trampled underfoot. Uh, Josephus, again, this Jewish historian, uh, gives these accounts, and I'm not reading the most graphic of them, um, but I do think these give a, a good sense of what was going on. Uh, throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring unspeakable sufferings. In every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence, and close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. No respect was paid even to the dying. And then later, closer to the destruction of the temple toward the end of this time, he says this, These Romans put the Jews to flight and proceeded as far as the holy house itself, at which time one of the soldiers, without uh, staying for any orders and without any concern or dread upon him at so great an undertaking, and being hurried on by a certain divine fury, snatched some of what uh, out of the materials that were on fire, and being lifted up by another soldier, he set fire to a golden window in the temple, through which, uh, in a passage to the rooms which were round the holy house on the north side of it. As the flames went upward, the Jews made a great clamor, such as so mighty an affliction required, and ran together to prevent it. 
And now they spared not their lives any longer, nor suffered anything to restrain their force, since that holy house was perishing. Thus it was the holy house burned down. Nor can one imagine anything greater or more terrible than this noise. For there was at once the shout of Roman legions, who were marching all together, and a sad clamor of the seditious, who were now surrounded with fire and sword. The people under a great consternation made sad moans at the calamity that they were under. Yet was the misery itself more terrible than the disorder. For one would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it. As the flame shot into the air, the Jews sent up a cry that matched the calamity and dashed to the rescue with no thought now of saving their lives or husbanding their strength. For that which hitherto they had guarded so devotedly was disappearing before their eyes. This is just one account of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus sees this and he wants to warn his disciples. Uh, this is not the end of the story and we're going to see next week um, how he's going to use the disciples and, and, and we're a part of the story that's continued beyond 70 AD and yet it's good to pause here at this climactic event uh, because these brutal descriptions are what took place. We've sort of looked descriptively what happened uh, Jesus describes it, uh, it, history corroborates it, but why did it happen? Jesus tells us as well, he says, these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. He says, these are days of wrath against this people, the Jewish people. Uh, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. As in Romans eleven fifteen, speaks of the rejection of Israel means the reconciliation of the Lord. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Remember that Jesus has been confronting apostate Israel throughout the Gospel of Luke, but steadily more and more as he goes into Jerusalem, he clears the temple. The opponents have been silenced now, and they are on the road now to kill Jesus by the end of the week. He has wept over Jerusalem and its people. He has warned them time and again. And this actually began in the ministry of John the Baptist, at the very beginning of Luke, he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Or in Matthew 3.10, John says this, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Marcellus Kick, in his commentary, is extremely helpful. And speaking of John the Baptist's words, it's as if John the Baptist has said, the ax is at the root, O Jerusalem. The time is at hand. It's as if the hand is here, ready to swing. And now Jesus is starting to describe what it's going to look like when that ax goes to the root. Kick writes this, the patience of God had come to an end. The cup of sin through this greatest of all crimes, the crucifixion of his beloved son, would overflow and bring upon the nation the terrible stroke of divine judgment. Consequently, upon their generation would come the payment for all the righteous blood which had been shed by the hands of the wicked throughout the preceding generations. And so Jesus declares in Matthew 23, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Jesus is emphasizing again that it was this generation that would fill the cup to overflowing and experience the terrible wrath of God. This is why judgment came upon Israel in 70 AD. They, the people of God, have rejected their Messiah. 
the one that they were supposed to be eagerly waiting for. They would reject the Messiah's messengers we see in the book of Acts. They would treat him the same way they treated their master as Jesus said they would. And sin against a holy God brings about wrath. For God is holy and God is righteous. God does demand our obedience as our creator. And especially sin against his own beloved son. And so friend, if you've come today and Jesus is not your savior, if, if on some level you can relate to those who are skeptical of him or those who reject him or those who say that he's just a man or that he's maybe a good teacher, but he's not the one who came and died on the cross, uh, that I don't deserve sin and he took that for me and rose again in power, I would ask you to repent and believe even this morning. Because as terrible as this destruction of Jerusalem was, as this outpouring of God's wrath was, as terrible, horrific, earth-shattering as 70 AD was for those who experienced it, it's like a fire drill compared to the judgment to come. It was, it was a small, big in world history, but a small piece of what it looks like for God's wrath to come out upon those who have rejected him. We'll see next week that the second coming of Christ is, is not fearful. It's, it, it, it's a means of hope and encouragement uh, to live, to open our eyes, to live for the kingdom now. We're going to see that next week. That's for believers. They eagerly await their blessed hope. But friend, if you're not a believer this morning, you don't have that blessed hope. The second coming of Christ is not life and hope and peace, but destruction. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Or in Psalm 75.8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. It's a powerful metaphor. Right? If, uh, imagine any sin is you know, maybe just one drop in the bucket. It, any sin, one sin, de- deserves eternal punishment and wrath because it's against a holy God. But uh, picture this cup that uh, sins have been pouring into drip after drip. And Psalm 78.5 speaks of this cup overflowing. It, just judgment is brimming. The axe is at the root. Have that in mind when you hear Jesus' words in Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was looking into that cup. Jesus knew that when he went to the cross, the physical pain would be unbearable enough on a human level, but he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath, which sinners deserve, and he did not. Jesus tells his disciples, you're, you're not able to drink the cup that I drink. The cup of God's wrath was overflowing and as, as Kick reminded us, spilling over with the death of his son. And in a smaller way, it poured out in history. Uh, but, but there's another way in which the cup of God's wrath, for those who believe, was emptied at the cross. It was emptied at the cross. Not just parts of it were taken away or it was poured out and it starts to be filled up again. No, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, they look at the cup and say, I deserve that. I should drink it. I should die. Like the thief on the cross, 
to the other thief, said, no, 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 we deserve this, he doesn't. And yet Jesus willingly took this cup, willingly took upon himself. If you could witness 70 AD, it would be nothing compared to what Jesus experienced on the cross. And he willingly took it for his people. There was not a drop left for those who believe. So that as we approach this passage, as they thought of 70 AD, but that's past for us, as, as we think of the second coming, as we think of the wrath of God being poured out, we have no fear as believers because he has drained the cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs. There's none left for the people of God, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We will never have to experience his wrath. We will never be forsaken by him. We belong to him. Friend, if, if you cannot be confident that this Jesus is your savior, I, I beg of you to put your faith in him even this morning. And because even all the harsh words that were given for the Jews at this time, I, it, it was not unforgivable. The, time was short for those who would continue to reject, but by the book of Acts, we see Peter preaching and saying, look, you put to death the author of life. And some in the crowd say, were cut to the heart and say, then what shall we do? And he says, repent and believe, repent and be baptized. There was hope even for those who stood by laughing as Jesus died on the cross. And so there is hope for you, friend. If you would but see that you deserve the cup and he took it for you. So if he is your savior this morning, rejoice that you will never experience some of the things that we've spoken about today and certainly not the last judgment. If he's not your savior, repent and believe in him. Flee from the wrath to come and find refuge for your weary soul in him. And for believers this morning, stay awake. Watch for his return. Fall at his feet daily and find life in this Jesus. Let's pray. And God, we thank you for your word. And that your word is powerful, it is used by your spirit to open our eyes to our sin, to open our eyes to our stupor, to wake us up. And I pray that that would be true of me, of all those present here, uh, that we would be awake, alive, ready to serve Christ at every turn, uh, even as we eagerly wait for his coming. And we thank you for his death on the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name.